I'm Tony Lockwood, founder of Thompson Wright Partners, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest edition of the Inside Track podcast, where I discuss business transformation journeys with leading figures in industry. Today, I'm joined by Alex Neen, a scientist with military background who has applied the core philosophies of science and the leadership approach gained within the army to massive success in transforming operations within UK industry. He has some really interesting perspectives that I'm sure you'll be able to adapt and adopt in your transformation journeys. So let's welcome Alex. Hi Alex, really great to have you on the podcast today and thank you for agreeing to contribute. Uh, is, it, is it worth sort of starting off talking a little bit about the roles that you've done and the challenges that you've had to overcome in, in, in each of them? Sure, yeah. I mean, I'll start, with, I'll start with what I've done and then you can kind of select what you want to do. I, yeah. I, I trained initially as a scientist. I moved into uh, the British Army, take a, a platoon of fairly experienced soldiers um, and convert them from a, a light role. So they've been kind of foot soldiers into a, a kind of armoured role, which was, which was quite a challenge. Yeah. Um, I did an MBA. I moved into the world of oil and gas. Uh, so I spent seven years working for um, Schlumberger, who had set up a consulting arm, trying to solve business problems for a large variety of international clients. And then finally, most recently, I've been um, at Centrica. And the last three years, I've been at British Gas working on, on kind of very major transformation programs, including the, the digital transformation including a, a kind of enormous outsourcing deal um, and also the operating model, changing the operating model for the, the Hive connected yeah. home business unit. Right, interesting. How, how does a scientist then go into the British Army? Just what, what, <laughs> what, what was the rationale for that? As you said, it's, a, it's an interesting career choice. For me, it was uh, a question of <laughs> taking taking my training which had been very very theoretical up to that point and trying to get a bit of practical application and practical learning um scientists aren't particularly known for making swift bold rapid decisions Ooh. army officers are right two early uh, elements of your career what, what 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 were the sort of key things that you bet were, were able to sort of take from those experiences um, that have allowed you to be successful in, in, in sort of the transformation world as you've developed your career? I think science is very much around framing a problem and doing analysis to give you the correct course of action and make decisions. Um, and that's clearly important at the beginning of a project or program. There's often a lot of pressure to get stuck in and fix things, but if you haven't done your analysis right and you don't structure the the program in the right way you won't have the results you want in terms of the army it's very much around decision making and balancing risk and reward and again programmatics is is all about that you've got to structure something there's always going to be an element of risk but depending on the the consequences and the context you're in you might want to dial down or dial up the risk you're you're ready to take so I suppose, yeah, analysis, structuring and decision making is the this kind of science and army um, takeaways. Right. I've worked with a lot of ex-forces, senior people within ex-forces, and I'm always really, really impressed um, by their ability to communicate and, and their ability to get people behind them. And I understand where that comes from, but it'd be interesting just to get your sense on that sort of 
I've had some friends and, and, and one, of the, the, one of the things that they were saying is that it is that sort of command and control type of, of scenario. Um, but actually just telling someone to do it and, and when you put them in danger is not good enough. You've almost, <laughs> you've, you've almost got to build that sort of that, that teamwork. I can't remember what the, the terminology is that they, that they were using, but, um, but it, it's always sort of um, uh, held them in really good stead for future careers. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of different elements there. The army is the only organisation where I've worked where where the single the single thing that is talked about every single day is leadership. In business, people talk about leadership, you know, more or less regularly. In the army, it's not just every day; it's every minute of every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a quality that's that's highly prized in the army that every level. Um, you're you're trained in there's a whole load of of material and resource and and feedback about leadership so I think culturally it's it's this you know it's it's an extraordinarily important value to military people some organizations have have very different approaches to leadership very flatter pyramids uh, less belief in micromanaging others have more and I, I don't believe the standards I don't believe the training you get in the army is not applicable to all those environments it's just how you manifest it yes yeah so when you moved into Slumberger you'd ended up going back into quite stressful uh, scenarios and being in in countries where where stuff was going on around you so so what do you do to sort of alleviate that stress get away from it all what clues or what help can you offer up for people who are Transformation programs change. People say stressful, but it's nothing like, as you say, being in those combat situations or in those situations that stuff's going on all around you. So, I, I, what what do you do to sort of get away from it all and chill out and and get back into the zone? It's a great it's a great question. I think I mean, first of all, before you go into a situation like that, you you want to be prepared for it, and no soldier's going to kind of turn up on day one and get chucks into. Um, Kabul you know there's a whole load of training and thinking you do before you go into that kind of situation Mm. um secondly when when you're in there I think you need to be very clear about your purpose so so knowing what your purpose is and why you're enduring whatever it is you're enduring um makes everything a lot easier I mean if you if you are having a dreadful time and everything's difficult and you don't really see the point in it that's a totally different circumstance to knowing exactly what what you want and taking a bit of pain to get the reward at the end um the other couple of elements that are useful i find is to um have some kind of emotional release um i had a colleague in transformation programs who used to watch eastenders and, and cry at it uh, <laughs> that wasn't my idea that wasn't the kind of release i i felt that's even more stressful <laughs> <laughs> um so I, I like I like to do outdoor activities. I, I really love getting outdoors into the hill, like um, ideally walking and biking uh, and climbing. Uh, and I find kind of focusing in your mind a different on a different type of problem. Yes, a good way of getting away. And and the final thing that's useful to do is have a support network. And whether it's friends and family or whether it's colleagues, it's really important to talk about the experience you're having. Um, with people who can listen sympathetically but also sometimes challenge i i find challenge me back a bit and remind you know help remind you of your purpose and 
ideally you kind of do all those things together and you go out into the hills with friends and have a bit of a whinge and they tell you to, to man up and, and <laughs> refreshed. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's interesting that so many people that you talk to, um, that getting back to nature is their release whether it's walking, whether it's going up in the hills, whether it's on, uh, going out on the bikes, whatever. But it's all, as you say, getting back into nature. And uh, um, I think um, too many people forget about that. So, so obviously change is constant these days and highly competitive con uh, market conditions, disruptive technologies sort of being launched day in, day out. Uh, and, and, and so the face of traditional business models having to massively change as new entrants come in and, and shake up the market. Uh, what, what would you say in your experience have been sort of the vital steps uh, that any organisation that's going through transformation needs to, needs to take? What, what sort of framework would you, would you suggest? I think the, fir the first thing is to acknowledge the disruption, acknowledge that change is constant because um, every organisation gets to a point where it has to change and where it will change. And, and it, it, embracing that and seeing the opportunities is, is the first step. Um, I guess programmatically, it's really important to understand your requirements for any reaction you're going to have. You've got to set your requirements. I've been on um, what, remediated programs that have, have kind of been trying to do the right thing, but yeah. it's not clear what good looks like, like or what the outcome and benefits required are. So right. very first thing in your frameworks to set the, 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 the benefits you want, the outcomes the programs are going to deliver and the outputs the projects are going to deliver to achieve that. The second thing is, is once you've got your target set up, it's, it's putting your structure in place. So um, your governance, your roles and responsibilities, making sure you've got the right resources and tools to do what you're going to deliver. And, and the third thing, um, once you've done that, is, is to get your baseline set and have your monitoring equipment set up. Right. Because if you want to have any degree of agility, you want to be testing and learning as you go along. And as you make a change, is it having the effect you want? Do you stop? Do you continue? Do you modify your approach? So those three things for me have always, I know it's simple, yeah. but, but you'd be amazed at how often it isn't done well. So setting your requirements, setting up, structuring a program in a, in a, in a clear fashion, and then monitoring and evaluating as you go along, they're, they're critical. Yeah, and, and all of those, are, as you say, they, they, they should be in that sort of formulation process, shouldn't they? Uh, you know, this is the way that we set a programme up to, for, for, for successful implementation. But all too often, it's, well, that's, that's the grudge work. I just want to get into the detail and let's get into it. And, 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 and suddenly you, you, you're trying to deliver stuff on, on, on moving sort of waters and you, you, you can never really understand or determine whether or not you've actually delivered what you set out to deliver i think it's that balance between the business imperative and the real genuine desire to make change happen but but sometimes sometimes people don't really understand programmatically what what you need to run a successful program and there, and there is a bit of a a kicking off and a set piece that feels like an admin and wasted time and non-productive time and a sideshow while you're doing it. But, but when you build a house, you, you don't see the foundations. But if you haven't built your foundations right, the house probably isn't going to last for too long. Yeah. And for me, that that initial phase of a, a project or program, and, and you can, you know, 
you can always achieve it within two weeks um, if you get the right uh, attention. That sets up your foundations and enables you to to build something successful. Yeah. Otherwise, you're continually re-steering the program, undoing decisions and activities you've made. And, and how do you manage your stakeholders, both senior <laughs> stakeholders and, and, and sort of the wider sort of stakeholder group? It is always challenging. Um, I, I think even, even the stakeholders, even your project team, people have um, different emotional states on different days. They have things going on outside the project and the program. On the project and program, they've got different desires and wants. And then when you layer in the, the kind of different levels of, of business unit requirements, politics on top of that, the context of projects working in is extraordinarily complex. I mean, for me, I think you have to, you have to first stay aware and, and you need to know who, who the key stakeholders are, who, who are the ones who have influence, who are the ones who have particular influence, are people positive or negative to what you're trying to achieve? Is there a, do they perceive a threat or an opportunity in what you're doing? Um, so, so first of all, that awareness piece, looking at, what the landscape is secondly paying attention to that and, and being really aware when things change and you know and having a stakeholder management plan of course but as part of that plan if if something unexpected pops up you need to interrogate it thirdly having perseverance when that when that happens so so when you have a problem it, it's it's often an opportunity for a positive conversation um uh, so so when, can you give us an example of when when you've had that sort of challenging yeah. stakeholder and 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 how you sort of uh, turned them around maybe absolutely i was having uh, i was running an operational transfer um so uh, an oil and gas asset that was not um financially performing like we wanted we decided we'd take it in house we'd outsource the operations and maintenance i pulled my team together and uh, I said, right, this is what we're going to do. We've got six months. We've got to do this transfer. And my HSE rep said, it can't be done. So this is the very first meeting. And this kind of, you know, as the meetings went on, I kind of louder and more firmly said, this will happen. And, and she said, no, no, it won't. Um, and it was a fairly, you know, unconstructed conversation. And I was annoyed because I felt she was being obstructive. And she was annoyed because she felt that I was, I was taking risks, an operational transfer of an asset volatile hydrocarbons you know think piper alpha yeah, yeah. there is all kinds of risk um so we, we're getting frustrated with each other the turning point came when we decided to actually dig into what the problem was if we manage the operation and maintenance ourselves, it gives us a lot more control not over only over the cost but also over the safety and she said but it's not me that's going to stop it it's the hse authority because we've got outstanding audit items on this on this asset um and together we kind of worked out actually by taking it in-house, the, the reason we had the outstanding items was because the previous contractor hadn't, we hadn't been able to control them. They hadn't done it. Right, yeah. So we kind of worked out that we could go to the HSE and, and say, look, we've got an opportunity here. We think we can resolve these issues. We can run the asset in a safer way if we take it in-house and, and, can we have your approval to do that? Because part of the reason that she was concerned, the HEC would block it, is, is that they just wouldn't approve it because of the risk. But we yeah. were able to work together and with the HSE, as it turned out, to show them 
that this was a there was a positive here. Right. So we've been in kind of it's almost like you sometimes find yourself in violent agreement. Yes. Initially, this can't be done. It then became a you know when you get into detail of why why can't it be done, it's kind of you see actually that there's the opportunity there, and then when you start collaborating, yeah, it can be done. But an element of getting into their shoes, isn't it, in understanding what 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 the situation is from their perspective and what the issues are and what the concerns are and some and some are absolutely valid but once you know those you can actually start to do something about it <laughs> equally there's other occasions i've been at uh, experience of where the the challenges or issues that they're having weren't valid but you can do something about that as well absolutely it comes down to the facts and and, and again back to this analysis and, and when you actually t- the more precise you can be when you talk about the problem it, it can't be done well okay that's a problem it can't be done because I don't believe the HSE will approve it. And you kind of go down your, you know, five whys. Well, why? Because, you know, we've already got outstanding actions. Why? Because the maintenance hasn't happened. Why? Because we can't control the contractor. Yeah. So why are we, you know, what we're asking you to do is change the contractor. So you can link it together. It's also part of that change curve. You know, yeah. no one, you know, we, we, all, we all normalize our environments and we all know that change takes a toll on us. You know, it's, it's, you've got to get over the bow wave before you can start kind of yes. moving forward. And so every time you do change, individually and collectively, you have to go through the stages of kind of denial, anger, kind of bargaining and hit your rock bottom and then come back up the side and see the hope and delivery. And, and you know, this HSE rep and I went, went through that journey. Right. In terms of engaging the, the sort of wider team, what do you do that? What sort of ideas or, or thoughts do you have about how, how that, that works successfully for you? I mean, I'm, I'm a really big fan of, of regular one-to-one meetings. With the more senior stakeholders, you, you tend to not find space in their diary in the, <laughs> unless you block it in in advance. And, and one of the programs I was involved in, we were setting up a big decommissioning program and it wasn't you know, there were, there were layers and layers of teams. There were contractors, there were different business units, there were different parts of our business units. And um, the project manager came up with the great idea of, of launching something called One Team. And I, in, in the principle, I believed in, we're going to be one team, we're going to have contracts and everyone in the same room. But I said, well, the practicalities of it, you know, so, you know, half, half a day meeting every month for, 50 people, you know, the practice is it's expensive. It's, it's, it's going to be a waste of time and money. It's not going to achieve what we want. And I was proved totally wrong. Yeah. And Will was fantastic. He, he stood out in front of everyone. He said, this is why we're doing it. And, he, and I realized that he, and we all know it, but it was just another data point showing, you know, he had different conversations, different connections with people yeah. than I did. Yeah. And in this forum, we could address certain things and in other forums we address different things and individually and collectively a program you never have this direct you know flick a switch and something happens on the ground it, it's always about nudging and influence and so, yeah. uh, navigating one, one of the things that uh, we, we've done successfully are these daily stand-ups 10-15 minutes in the morning five minutes in the afternoon 
um, just to, to ensure that everybody's in the same place in terms of what the priorities are, what's, uh, um, what, what the focus is for today, and then coming back at the end of the day, have we done it? What are the barriers? What do we need to resolve? What, what do we need to uh, get out of the way for tomorrow? Um, and that just starts to really build up the momentum really, really quickly. And people have got, they've got a, a feeling that they've got a, 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 a place to voice any concerns that they have. And it, and it doesn't it doesn't sort of fester then. People get into the uh, into the swing of it, and they do, and they do voice their issues. And you just get into the as, you, as we were saying earlier, right into the detail really early on in the process. And for me, that's yeah. I mean, I I, I agree entirely. It's it's SOPs. I mean, any any project or program, there's not a daily kind of stand up. Uh, for, for the team, for the immediate team, yeah. that's a that's a project or program I'd be concerned about. Yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, I, I see also that you're involved in Team Rubicon. Um, yeah. tell, tell me about that. I, I, I was quite interested, intrigued to see what it was about. They are fantastic. They're um, so the, the idea is that it's international disaster relief, and and what they're trying to do is use both veterans um, from the military, so there's a kind of military link and military influence, but also local local communities and people who just want to get stuck in and, and help. Um, what they're particularly good at is, is basic organisation and training and, and briefing so they can work within a team. And I love that whole idea of, of, in a very lean and agile way, having an event, taking the resources you've got and giving them the, the kind of minimum of training to make people effective what what they're also brilliant at is um on some of the the kind of more serious international incidents they'll send out reconnaissance parties to to do situational analysis and work out how to solve it so back to this this passion of mine of of kind of situational awareness yeah. analyzing and scoping a solution brilliant Really good, and as and as you say, so many of those areas that um, has been covered within Rubicon, absolutely transferable into into your day to day job as well, where where you're bringing people together with a common aim on some projects. People want to get involved, and actually, they just need to be guided in the in the right way. It is fantastic. I mean, I I would say the skills you can learn for something like that are they're they're, they're life skills that we. You know, Oh, great. Brilliant. So uh, to sort of finish off, um, if you are to boil down your sort of all experience into one sort of core takeaway for the listeners today, what would that be? <laughs> and I think it's something that I arrived at early on and I've been refining as I go. Uh, and the first thing is, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. <laughs> You've always got to have a plan. You know, the second thing is plans are nothing and planning is everything. Just, just, yeah, it's interesting. And I just want to sort of pull you back a little bit. Um, absolutely, totally agree with uh, fail to plan, plan to fail. Um, what do you classify as a plan? Oh, well, a, a plan is, a, is you've, you've got to have an objective. You want to work out what you want to do and you've got to have some schema to get, to get towards that objective. You've got to know your purpose. And now that purpose can change. Your plan will change because the second bit of wisdom is, is plans are nothing and planning is everything. It's not the plan you have, you will never deliver exactly. No, absolutely. Always modify that plan based on what happens in, in reality and if your objectives change. 
So the third, the third piece of advice, which I guess maybe that's the one up, the one that's absolutely critical, it's the US Marine Corps motto, improvise, adapt, overcome. Right. You know, whatever happens, you've got to be persistent and you find a way through. You improvise, adapt, overcome to achieve your objective. But that on its own, that's why I like to say, that, you know, failing to plan is planning to fail. If you don't have an objective, if you haven't had some kind of plan, you can do all the improvising, adapting you want. You, know, how you, get... you don't know which direction you're going to go in. Yeah. <laughs> great. No, that's really good. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, well, it's really great. Thank you very much uh, for your time and your insights, Alex. Um, we, we occasionally get some questions for on, you know, asking for clarification on some of the points that you raise. If I sort of coordinate that, are you happy to, to respond? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really passionate about project and program management. I'm really passionate about solving problems I, I love coaching and training people and as it happens at the moment i'm i'm running a couple of little little projects one of which it is with rubicon and it's around how we can extend the um the training that we give volunteers and and give a more general leadership training um so oh, great. i hopefully will have the capacity to answer plenty of questions excellent well thank you very much and uh, speak soon really nice to meet you Brilliant. Cheers, Bye. Alex. So what is your one takeaway from this episode with Alex? I'm intrigued to learn more about Rubicon, so we'll look to schedule another session with Alex and hopefully some of the Rubicon team to explore how their approach can help you to deliver transformation within your organisation. If you wish to learn more before then, I'll put a link to their website in the show notes. Once again, thank you, Alex. And I'll hopefully see you again in a couple of weeks. Bye for now.